This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. There is no better way than to start a show with some lady, mother-loving gaga. This is Stanley Fritz, and you're listening to Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, I am here with Alyssa Fuchs. It is just me and her this Sunday. Selena is in the Cayman Islands. Jackie is in California. Jason is being a dad. Carlos got deported. Just kidding. He didn't get deported. (laughs) He's in Costa Rica. I think he's in Costa Rica. Isn't he a citizen? Yeah, yeah, so he is. How would he get deported? Because, you know, he's Carlos. No, I was kidding. But um, in case you guys are just tuning in, the first half of the show, we talked about the Supreme Court decisions that came in this past session. We had our news roundup, talked about the guy that was arrested and fired from McDonald's for putting his mixtape in Happy Meals for Children. And now we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court cases you should be looking out for in 2016. And I'm going to throw the ball to Alyssa. Oh, yeah. So uh, there's a whole bunch of cases that have already been docketed for next term. There's still going to be a lot more cases that will be docketed. So obviously today is not a full roundup of all the cases that you're going to see or hear next year, just so you know. Um, so far, the ca- the court has decided to hear uh, a handful of cases. I-, I would tell you the exact number, but I'm not going to sit here and count them up. Um, and there will be more cases that the Supreme Court actually adds to this list, presumably. Um, so a big thing or a big theme that we're going to see coming up in the next term is states suing each other. Um, I know when I mentioned this to Stanley, he was like, what? Wait, what? Um, Well, actually, when states want to sue each other, they do it in the Supreme Court. I'm going to get back to that in a minute because the first thing I want to mention is a really important case. Um, It's called Fisher versus the University of Texas at Austin. Stanley is actually going to spend the last uh, few 10 10 or so minutes of the show breaking that down for you in the quickie. We're going to actually have a little role reversal um, since I've been carrying the majority of the uh, the show over here, breaking down all these cases for you. Stanley, I'm actually going to give the opportunity to do a legal quickie, but don't worry, Stanley, I'll jump in and uh, catch you if, uh, <laughs> if, you, if you're missing something. I'm sure I'm missing a lot, girl. Uh, but anyways, the issue in Fisher is whether or not the Fifth Circuit, that's an appeals court, re-endorsement of the University of Texas's at Austin's use of racial preferences in their undergraduate admissions decisions can be sustained under the court's decisions interpreting the Equal Protection Clause of the Fourth Amendment, including the first Fisher versus the University of Texas at mm-hmm. Austin. So essentially in this case, and I'll, I don't want to give away too much, but a white girl in Texas sued and she argued that um, the policy of affirmative action at the University of Texas violated e- the Equal Protection Clause because she was being treated differently than black students who had gotten similar grades or worse grades than she had gotten on her exams. Yep. And what she essentially argues is that the whole whole idea of equal protection is that the races are equal, that black people and white people are equal, and that because they are equal, they need to be assessed equally for college admissions purposes. Um, And this has been something that's been going on for a while, which is this argument that, you know, affirmative action should go away because it treats races differently um, instead of treating races the same. And the whole idea is that we want black and white people to be treated the same way. Um, So Stanley's going to tell you more about that case later on in the show. Um, and I'm going to get back to the the whole thing about states suing each other. So when a state wants to sue another state, um, the Supreme Court is actually the court of original jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the states can either – sometimes they sue each other, uh, you know – 
they try and start in district court, but ultimately when one state wants to sue another state, they can go directly to the Supreme Court. Do not pass go. Do not collect $100. <laughs> go straight there. Um, or it's $200, is it not? I haven't played Monopoly in a while. Side note, we should get drunk and play Monopoly. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Anyways, getting back to this. So um, we are seeing this theme where states are suing each other. And what are they suing each other over? They are suing each other over Water. Water. Um, So Florida is suing Georgia and Mississippi is suing Tennessee. The cases are a little different, but essentially Mississippi is suing Tennessee for stealing Mississippi's water. Um, Mississippi is saying that Tennessee took 252 billion gallons of high-quality groundwater and they pumped it from Mississippi into Tennessee. um, And basically... Mississippi is saying that they are entitled to damages um, and to injunctive relief, which is they want money for the amount of water that the state of Tennessee took from them, and they want Tennessee to stop taking their water. Wow. Um, very similar action is going on between Florida and Georgia, where Florida is saying that they want to be equitably apportioned to waters of, I'm going to botch this, the Apalachicola Chattahoochee. Chattahoochee, Flint River Basin. Um, They are saying that they are not sustaining adequate adequate flow of fresh water into the Apalachola region because Georgia is taking some of this water and diverting it. Um, And so they want the water to be apportioned equitably, meaning they want some of the water to go to them and some of the water to go to Georgia. And they also want injunctive relief against Georgia. So they want Georgia to stop taking more water than they basically allowed Georgia to take uh, through this equitable apportionment. So a lot of cases about water because water is so important. As you know, so many states are experiencing drought. And so they're trying to figure out ways to get water. And one of the ways which some states are getting water is to sort of steal this water from other states. Uh, And so now the other states are getting mad and they're like, hey, you can't have our water. We're going to go to court and we're going to say, no, we want money for the water you've already taken from us. And we want a court ruling saying whether or not you're even allowed to have water um, (laughs) and how much of it you're allowed to have of ours. Oh, my goodness. This is ridiculous. But then these are the same states that refuse to acknowledge that climate change is an issue. But the reason they're fighting for this water now is because their states are now all of a sudden having water shortages or at least fresh water shortages. And we actually did a show about that, about like cognitive dissonance when Texas was having the flood. So if you want to check that show out, we had somebody on from who's an environmental guy and he talked about how the extreme weather is related to climate change and some of the issues with water and drought that we are experiencing in Texas and California and other places. You should check that show out. Absolutely. And I'll make sure that I tweet out all these shows so you guys can have them on our Twitter sphere and find it on our Facebook page and if you don't follow us on there you should be following us on there if you would like to receive a CD with all of the season shows um, you can make a donation to WHCR go to WHCR.org go to donate put let your voice be heard as a person once you make that donation just make sure you leave your address and we will mail you a CD with all this year's shows you and know what? you can catch up even better than a CD we may be able to send you a little flash drive thing yes we absolutely we can, can load it up with all of our shows yep, and, and that's a donation can... of $15 Oh, I can't say the price on here, actually. But uh, a very kind donation, which is also tax-deductible, to whcr.org. Make sure you do that for us. So people are fighting over water in Georgia and Tennessee and Alabama and Mississippi, and they don't believe in climate change. This makes 100% sense. So what's going to happen in in a case if, like... How does the court decide on this? You know, so the first in the Mississippi versus Tennessee, the court first has to decide whether they're going to actually grant Mississippi leave to file the action. Um, Because, as I said, the court of 
the Supreme Court is normally an appeals court, right? It's yeah. the last court to hear any case. But in certain situations where a state wants to sue another case, the Supreme Court is actually the case of original jurisdiction, which yeah. means you can actually – a state can bring a lawsuit against another state yeah. in the Supreme Court just like I can bring a lawsuit against you yeah. in court here in – um, Manhattan or up in the Bronx or I can sue you in federal court. Yeah. Well, if a state wants to sue another case, they can do it in Supreme Court. So in the Mississippi case, the first thing that the court has to decide is whether they are going to grant Mississippi leave to file an action. And then yeah. once Mississippi files the action, they will also decide whether Mississippi has the sole sovereign authority over the control of the groundwater naturally stored within its borders, including in sandstone within its borders, and two, whether or not Mississippi is entitled to damages and to injunctive relief for the fact that Tennessee has forcibly taken groundwater from the respondents, uh, I'm sorry, the respondents are Tennessee, and they the respondents have forcibly taken groundwater from the petitioners, which is Mississippi. But how did they even prove that they took the water? That's what, like, water is, uh, what? How do you? Well, no, that's actually pretty easy to prove. If oh. the state of Tennessee has, um, gives the right to a water company to uh-huh. actually set up a water pumping station yeah. in Mississippi, and this water pumping station is pumping water from Mississippi out into Tennessee, that's pretty easy to prove. Oh. I mean, you have pipes, you have yeah. all, I mean, the physical infrastructure is in place. Yeah. Um, anyways, getting away from water for a second, there's another, a lot of really, really interesting cases that we have coming up. Stanley? Yeah, no, I was going to say that, like, that's, so, one of the cases I want to make sure we talk about is the one about the collective bargaining. But, just to stick on this topic one more time, like, what if, like, they don't have a water company right there and there's, like, no pipe system over there? How can they prove it? Uh, you know, that's, it's the same way you prove anything else in court. You have circumstantial evidence, um, and you get science people, experts to come <laughs> and testify that even though the 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 pipes are not still physically there, hypothetically saying they remove the infrastructure, yeah. that there will be certain telltale signs that there was once a water piping station. So there's ways to prove it that even if you don't have direct evidence, just like you would prove anything. For example, right? Mm -hmm. Here's a perfect example of the way we talk about direct evidence versus uh, circumstantial evidence. If you are sitting in this studio, which has no windows, Mm -hmm. but you see me come in with an umbrella and I'm soaking wet, and then Selena comes in with an umbrella and she's soaking wet, and then every, you know, Ash Cash comes in with an umbrella and he's soaking wet, you can make the conclusion that yeah. it's probably raining outside even though you can't see out the windows that's circumstantial evidence okay cool so guys that's circumstantial evidence this is not we are going on a break when we get back we'll be talking about some of the more some other cases you should look out for in 2016 this is let your voice be heard yeah. We, we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on WHCR 90.3 FM, The Voice of Harlem. I am going to marry Marilyn. I do not know her dad, but I'll tell you why off air. I don't think she'd be too happy about me talking about that kind of stuff on air. But I want you guys to know that we have been talking about Supreme Court cases. In the first half of the show, we talked about the cases that happened in this session. On this this half of the show, we are going to be talking about cases, and we have been talking about cases that are coming up now. This is very interesting, guys. If you'd like to know what the hell is going on in your life, in your laws, what could affect you, this is how you do it. Alyssa, hit them. All right, so this is another case that we did a quickie on, and so we'll make sure we tweet this one out as well. This is Evanwell versus Abbott. Uh, this is a case about what the idea of one person, one vote means under the Equal Protection Clause. Um, so basically, the issue is whether the basically what happened is these 
Republicans, these conservatives um, in Texas, they are saying that they are being disenfranchised because their vote is worth less because of the fact that they live in a rural neighborhood and that people who live in urban, urban neighborhoods, we know what that means, um, have more voting power because they have a higher population density. And essentially what they're saying is in order to even it out and to have it be more equitable, that they should determine one person, one vote based on the total number of eligible voters, not based on the total population. So Mm. what they're saying is there's all these people that live in cities that Mm. they don't vote, but we're determining that voting apportionment based on these people even though they don't vote but in rural counties a lot more people do vote Mm -hmm. and so if we count based on the people who do vote then we will essentially shift power from the urban centers and the urban places into the rural more republican areas correct so so quick question and just you can just tell me to shut the heck up from way off Mm -hmm. base so say for example manhattan right Right. is the urban area and brooklyn is the rural area and in manhattan we have five million people i don't think that's a good example just to cut in i would say let's use for the five boroughs together and call Mm -hmm. it new york city as the urban area Uh and then compare that to a more rural area like in the hudson valley okay so what you New York City as an urban area and then the Hudson Valley as a rural area, right? Okay. So let's say New York City has 5 million people, right? And then the Hudson Valley has 3 million people. Right. And New York City is a liberal. Is a liberal. We know that. They have liberal ideals. And Hudson is more conservative. They want more conservative laws. But because New York City has more people, when the election's finished, these elected officials' side are usually passed laws that might be more beneficial to New York City? No, it's not about that. It's okay. actually about voting power in general. Mm-hmm. What they're saying is if if New York City has five, well, we know New York City has almost nine million people, but yeah. we use eight because that's generally what we say for New York City. Yeah. So if New York City has eight million people, yeah. but only one million of those people are registered to vote, yeah. but you're determining the district based on all of the people, based yeah. on that eight million number, right? Mm-hmm. So even though only one million of those people vote, you're determining that district based on the 8 million number. Now, in the Hudson Valley, let's say they only have, I don't know, 2 million people. But out of that 2 million people, 1.5 million people actually vote. So what they're saying is by determining the district based on total population, Mm -hmm. instead of based on the eligible voters, that it's actually shifting power into the urban centers, and it's making it so that their one vote is worth less than one vote. But how is it shifting power? That's what I'm confused about. Well, they say it's shifting power because we're determining that we're drawing the districts based on 8 million people, even though only 1 million of those people vote. Um, and so that's what they're saying. These 8 million people don't vote. So why should they have all this power in that district based on the way the lines are drawn? That's what they're saying, okay. right? So the issue is whether the three-judge district court correctly held that one person, one vote under the Equal Protection allows states to use total population and does not require states to use voter population when apportioning state legislative districts. Yeah. Obviously, I've done a quickie on this. Those questions that you're asking me, I answered um, very much so during the quickie. There's a lot of good reading material. Material on Evanwell, especially on Vox, which I know I see in the background. We have actually the Vox website up. They've done a few articles on it and some good breakdowns on Supreme Court blog itself. Um, and this is really going to matter because if they use total population, then things will essentially stay status quo as they are now. If they start using only the voter population, then you're going to see a lot of shifting of political power into places where you have a more, a higher number of people that actually go vote versus oh, a higher okay, number of people in the population. Understand? I get it. 
that's why it shifts the power. So like you get more elected official representatives for these areas. Right, exactly, okay, because more people in them actually vote. But didn't that help the South Like when we first like started the country because they could use like African-Americans as three-fifths of a person? It like boomed up their population and they had more representatives? Right, well, that is a, sort of the opposite of this, right? Yeah. This was saying, well, these people are not eligible to vote, but we want them to count as part of the voting population so that we can boost our representative. Yeah. This is sort of the opposite. Now they're saying all these people don't vote, but they're getting counted in the population, and that's mm. skewing my vote. So I think that we should count only the, pe- the total number of people who vote when we apportion the districts, yeah. not everybody who lives in them. I feel like the Supreme Court would rule in the favor of the, of the general population because they, at any moment these people can register to vote and vote. You know, I never know what the Supreme Court's going to do anymore. I'd like to say that the Supreme Court will look at this and say, you know, we're not going to upend the way that we do the census. Like, we're going to draw districts based on total population. That's just the easiest way to do it. Yeah. But, you know, they may say that this does, in fact, violate the Constitution. We never know. Because voter so, registration numbers can change at any moment, literally. Right. So but we only do a census once every 10 years. Yeah. Um, anyways, another two really, really, really big things on the docket that I want to mention, and then Stanley's going to end by telling you all about Fisher and affirmative action, which is unions and the death penalty, specifically public unions. So this is a really, really important case. It's known as Fredericks versus the California Teachers Association. And the first issue is whether another Supreme Court case, Abood versus the Detroit Board of Education, should be overruled. So basically, and whether public sector agency shop arrangements should be invalidated under the First Amendment. Um, well, really, the bigger picture is this: Does the first does it violate the First Amendment to require that public inform employees have to pay union dues to public sector unions rather than requiring their affirmatively consent to subsidizing the speech? So essentially, these um, people are challenging their union membership on the grounds that it, the union speaks for them and that it violates their First Amendment rights to have to make them pay union dues because if they have to pay union dues, then the union gets to speak on their behalf and maybe the union is not saying things that they necessarily agree with. And so they're saying that they shouldn't affirmatively be required to have to pay these union dues. Now, the really bigger issue in this is if the Supreme Court rules in their favor and says it does, in fact, violate their First Amendment rights to force them to have to pay union dues when a union is because it because the fact that the union speaks for them and doesn't necessarily say things that they would agree with. And now you have a collective bargaining problem, right? The way your union works is that everybody pays in. If you're a member of the union, you have to pay in. Yep. Um, you know, you pay in, otherwise you're not a member of the union. But if, even if you're not a member, you still pay a small amount, right? right? And even if you're not a member of the union, you still, but that's, yeah, that's a little different though. Yeah. Um, that was another case that sort of was right. dealt with last term, um, which I don't have the information on, so I can't give you off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, and I didn't prep for it. Um, I'll try and get that information for the website. We can throw it up. Or we actually Twitter. covered that as a quickie as well. I'll yeah, we did. Um, <laughs> so we can, we can tweet that one out as well. But what this one is, is saying that if these union employees no longer have to pay um, these these uh, collective bargaining collective fees, bargaining fees uh, because they violate their First Amendment rights. Then essentially, that is going to make it such that public un- public sector unions may go away. Now, this is specifically about teachers unions, but it goes further because it's about all public sector unions. That is different than a private sector union. Yeah. So, totally, the reason why it's different is because public public employees are technically government employees, and mm-hmm. so there's different considerations when we take into account the First Amendment. For mm-hmm. example, like a police officer does not have 
the same First Amendment rights as a regular citizen like you or I. Why? Because police officer, generally speaking, represents the government. So when a police officer says something, it could be seen as being the position of the organization that represents. That's why if you have friends that are New York City police officers, they're very careful about what they post online sometimes, at least publicly, um, because – they have less free speech rights due to their job. Now, obviously, so these we're talking about public sector unions. Um, I'm going to start to wrap this one up. Um, we possibly, and I think probably definitely, will cover this more next year, um, Come not next year, but in October when yeah. the term gets started and when they do the oral arguments. I'm going to definitely have a push with my colleagues here to get this on as a full segment to get somebody on who's really familiar with employment law and with unions, um, somebody who's an activist and somebody who can really speak on how the outcome of this case will affect public sector unions. You'll have my support. I read a really great article in Al Jazeera about this case. I'm totally for it. So look for more to come. But suffice to say for right now, this case is really important because it's going to determine whether or not we have public sector unions unions depending on what the Supreme Court rules. If the Supreme Court rules that people do not have to pay in, Mm -hmm. uh, then this union is going to have a hard time surviving because if people are deciding that they don't want to pay union dues, they don't want to be part of the union, then that's going to make it really hard for the union to function. That's also going to have political implications because public sector unions are generally backers of Democrats um, and, and so and progressive issues. policies um, and labor issues. And so when unions go away, a lot of times what you see is what happens in states like Wisconsin where you get a lot of right-to-work legislation. Yep. Um, so last but not least, before we switch gears and Stanley gives you a breakdown of affirmative action, The death penalty is going to be back next term. There are many cases that deal with the death penalty. There are um, Kansas versus Carr, which is going to deal with whether the Eighth Amendment requires that a capital sentencing jury be affirmatively instructed that mitigating circumstances need not be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, as the Kansas Supreme Court held, or whether the Eighth Amendment is satisfied by instructions that in context make clear that each juror must individually assess and weigh any mitigating circumstances. So that's going to be about jury instructions, um, whether the court affirmatively has to tell each juror about mitigating instructions or whether uh, if as long as the juror knows that mitigating instructions, mitigation has to be taken into account, that's good enough. Um, There is also a case called Kansas versus Gleason, which is whether the Eighth Amendment requires that capital sentencing jury also be affirmatively instructed about mitigating circumstances. So that's going to be a combined case, Kansas versus Gleason and Kansas versus Carr. They raise a very similar issue. Um, There is also a case of Montgomery versus Louisiana, which is about uh, juveniles who have already be condemned to die um, and whether, well, Miller versus Alabama is a case that says that juveniles cannot be executed. Yeah. If you committed a, a death penalty or capital crime when you're eight, eight, younger than 18, you can't be executed. This is about whether that applies retroactively oh. in reviewing some of the death sentences of, of those juveniles who were sentenced prior uh, to this ruling in Miller versus Alabama. Um, And the other big case about the death penalty is a case known as Hearst versus Florida. And that is whether Florida's death sentencing scheme violates the Sixth Amendment right to a fair trial or the Eighth Amendment in light of this court, the Supreme Court's decision in Ring versus Arizona, which is another case uh, that we unfortunately do not have the time to get into. So the death penalty coming back next term, it's going to be very big. Um, I don't expect none of these cases raise the issue of whether the death penalty violates the constitution 
on its face, but they do raise issues surrounding the Eighth Amendment and the death penalty and the constitutionality of different sentencing schemes. Um, so it should be a very interesting next term. The one I'm the most excited about is the union one. Yeah. But you know what, though? A fun fact about the unions is that they talked about how in Indiana, where the rights to work laws are the law of the land now, they have not seen a lot of people secede from unions, you know. Like, a lot of the the um the sign-up rates or, like, the fee rate has not dropped at all, which is a good thing, but that doesn't mean that these companies or these organizations cannot, can't not now just invest in campaigns to get people to back out of collective bargaining. Right. Well, that's why I drew the distinction, because when you're talking about companies, those are private sector unions. Yeah. You're talking about companies saying you're not allowed to unionize versus yeah. public sector unions because the government can't necessarily – like a private company can tell its employees you're not allowed to unionize, right? Yeah. Public sector union is a function of the government. Yeah. First Amendment says you have the right to assemble. The right to assemble includes the right to unionize. And yeah. so when it comes to public sector unions, you have different considerations because the government can't tell you yeah. that you do not have the right to assemble and unionize like your private employer. Yeah. Same way – and you know – without getting too much off topic because I know we want to switch gears and talk about affirmative action. It's the same reason why your private employer can drug test you. Yeah. but and, and certain government jobs, they can, in fact, drug testing you without violating the Fourth Amendment. But yeah. it's why there's been many court rulings that say we can't drug test people who want to collect food stamps because yeah. it violates their Fourth Amendment right to against search and seizure. And you have people that say, but I get drug tested for my job. And you're like, yeah, but your job is not the government. You yeah. work for a private company you they can do whatever they want the constitution does not apply to a private employer yeah they're not a state actor on that note we're going to talk about um people who are state actors which are um public universities yes thank you so much for that transition Melissa. so guys we're talking about abigail fisher versus university of texas and Austin. So if you guys have been listening to the show for a couple of years, you know when we first got here, this is one of the first topics we covered. And it's pretty much this young lady by the name of Abigail Fisher graduated from her high school with a 3.59 GPA and wanted to go to the University of Texas. Now, in the University of Texas, they have a very interesting formula to let people into their schools. So any person who graduates in the top 10 percentile of their graduating class in high school has automatic admission into the University of Texas. From that point, if you do do not hit that. There is a second way in. You can go to one of their um, satellite colleges and then transfer in after a year or two. That's option two. Option three is you can apply for general admission and they put you into a certain formula. So that formula includes um, um, socio socioeconomic um, occurrences, things that affect you, your housing experience, your um, community service, your race, your gender, and where you live. All those things are taken into consideration and they use that formula to rate like if they should bring into the school. So Abigail Fisher applied through that scale. The year that she applied, about 142 people got into University of Texas through that process. Pardon me, 68 people got into University of Texas through this process. She was not one of them. She posited that because she did not get in through this process, it happened because she was white and University of Texas was purposely using this to bring in more black people and people of color in general. Therefore, meaning that because... Even though these people probably had the same grades or worse than hers, they were being let into the school because of their race. She took it. You want to jump in? Yeah, no, yeah. So she was essentially arguing the legal term is she was arguing that she was being discriminated against yes. on the basis of race because she was not being treated equally as those of another race. Yes. So she challenged this in the local court. The court ruled in favor of the 
University of Texas. She took it to another court. The court ruled in favor of University of Texas. She took it to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court vacated the ruling from the previous court and said, take a look at it again. That happened in 2013. If you guys remember, we did a Supreme Court wrap-up segment about three years ago where we said the Supreme Court punted on this case. Well, they did. They went back to the lower court. The lower court came up with the same decision, a 7-to-1 ruling in favor of University of Texas. So now she's taking it back to the Supreme Court. And as we know, people like Clarence Thomas and Justice Scalia are very much against affirmative action. Clarence Thomas, or Uncle Ruckus, as I like, as I like to call him, who um, loves the white man and loves the white man with all of his heart and thinks that slavery didn't take away dignity from black people. Because, yeah, you saw that? Oh, God. Did you see the Larry Wilmore clip I sent you? I did not see that clip. I got to watch that clip. Watch it. I put it on your wall. I'm going to make you watch yeah. it before you leave tonight. <laughs> Clarence Thomas is a cyborg, guys. But I got that from This Week in Blackness. But anyways, like they're very much against affirmative action, so we are expecting a very problematic ruling when this comes back to the Supreme Court. Well, that's um, problematic depends on who you talk to, right? This is very true. Well, so, I would agree with you that it's problematic. Uh, yes. However, that's subjective. Yes. Yeah, so now let's talk about let, – let's, let's break down what some of her arguments were. So now, with a 3.59 GPA, if Abigail had been in the top 10 percentile of her graduating class, she would have gotten into University of Texas with no problem. She was not. Then – she could have gone to a satellite school where she would have gotten automatic admission to, then transferred over. She refused. And she applied for this formula um, admission, right? And about 68 people got into it. Out of the 68 people admitted through this process, 49 of them were white. The remaining were black and Spanish, and they all had higher GPAs than her. Out of the people who were rejected, about um, 56 people were rejected from the, from the application process. More than 80% of the people rejected were black and had higher GPAs and more community service experience than her. Which means that, I mean, if we're looking at it just from the numbers, she's wrong. She has not been discriminated against. And actually, the process has worked. University of Texas has actually um, implemented the system, which I would hope that other colleges do, because of a previous lawsuit in which they were being accused of letting people of color in, which we talked about on that show a couple years ago. Alyssa? Right, yeah. The issue is that the Supreme Court isn't a court that finds facts. They're not. They're only going to look at the facts that that are from the lower case they're yeah. really the supreme court is only going to find law yeah. right so they're not going to necessarily look i mean they're going to look at the facts that exist but they're not necessarily going to find like oh well let's they're not a fact-finding court yeah, is my no, they're point not. they're not going to reassess whether or not other black people got in that had the same grades or better than her or didn't get in or this that those are all factual issues that have to be addressed by the lower court yep. just to make that clear yeah so thank you for that Melissa. so but it's going to go back to the supreme court and this is the case they're going to discuss we don't know what they're going to decide but, listen, they've been going after affirmative action for quite some time. The reason that Texas has this admission process now is because they went after their affirmative action policies before, and the Supreme Court did, in fact, rule that it was problematic to admit someone in solely on their race, which is why they came up with this formula, so that being a person of color, while it's considered into your application process, it is not the final answer. University of Texas has actually been awarded for its admission, admission process, and a lot of other schools are implementing that. Another fun fact, the people that benefit the most from affirmative action, white women and Asian people. Really? Yeah. You know, the thing that I find so interesting, obviously I'm in favor of affirmative action because mm -hmm. black people have been historically disenfranchised in this country, uh, you know, all the way back from the slave trade, the triangle trade, uh, up <laughs> until the present time where we see with police accountability issues. Um, yeah. And, you know, obviously that leads to a situation where, you know, I do believe that while race shouldn't be the only factor, it should be yeah. a factor considered in the admissions process. Yeah. On the other hand, mm -hmm. just to play not necessarily my personal feelings, but just to 
play devil's advocate position. I have met a lot of black people Mm -hmm. that are against affirmative action, not just Clarence Thomas. And they say this idea of equality, which is I want to be treated equally to everybody else. I do not want to get into a college because my race was taken into account. I want to get into a college because I have better grades. I am smarter. I have better extracurriculars. I want to be on the same level playing field as my white peers, where I have met many other black people have said no. Black people have been historically disenfranchised. We need to have an extra little factor in bump up in helping us get into some of these colleges. So there's definitely a mixed feeling among even people of color when it comes to the issue of affirmative action because there are so many people that say, I want to be treated equally, and giving me a bump up is not treating me equally. Dude, I'm so happy you brought that up. So I have two two ways to respond to that. That is why I am so impressed and happy with University of Texas because as we all know, schools where this predominantly children of color tend to have lower ratings than schools where it's mostly white or rich because they have lower funding, they have higher dropout rates, etc., etc. So, for example, I went to East New York Family Academy in Brooklyn and I, was, I graduated in the top 10 percentile of my school. But when I applied to a school like Harvard, they said he, he graduated in the top 10 percentile. But look at the graduation rate in that school. It's low. Look at the neighborhood. It's not good. So his 3.5 is probably a 2.2 in the Upper East Side. University of Texas does not do that. Right. So if you, no matter where you come from, if you graduate in the top 10 percentile, you have automatic admission. So... When people are talking about they want to be, you know, get let into a school because of their grades and not because of their color, they're not thinking about that, and they should consider those things. And secondly, I was one of those people who felt that, like, I wanted to be let in on the merits of my skills and my intelligence, but unfortunately, like I just mentioned before, a lot of people of color are coming from schools where the quality of education is not on the same level of these other schools, which is why when I got to college, I did not know, I, I still, like, did not understand proper punctuation. Right. And there are a lot of people who go through these things, and it's not because necessarily we have bad teachers or anything else like that. But when you're forcing people to be taught to a test and when like there's a lot of social um, promotion going on, it's just hard to keep up and you're underfunded. Right. So that's what happens. And I think no, no one wants to be, you know, letting on the easy pass, but that's not, that's no, not what's happening. I know, no, that's true. And I agree with that. And the other thing is that the court doesn't like when there's discrimination based on race, right? Yep. And and what this case raises is, is, and you may not see it that way because you may look at it and say, you know, affirmative action is, as we point out, a way to make the playing field evenly. Yes. But the way the court looks at it from a legal perspective mm-hmm. is not about the social or, um, you know, philosophical value of affirmative action. It's looking at the legal value under the Equal Protection Clause. And the Equal Protection Clause at law says that we can't discriminate based on race. We have to treat two different, two races equally. And they're saying that, well, at least the, as you point out, even somebody like Justice Thomas, who's black, is saying this is discrimination based on race. You know, and the law does, well, that's true, but the law does not allow for discrimination based on race. Now, obviously, I'm pro-affirmative action. Mm -hmm. I think we should keep affirmative action. I hope the court rules in favor of the University of Texas, but it is interesting that there's this dynamic where, under the law, the uh, whole idea is that you're not supposed to discriminate based on race right (laughs) and so that's the key to this and this court has is going to have to make that decision on that note unfortunately we are out of time for this week uh we will be back next week i will not be here next week i will be at a wedding yay wedding not a gay wedding but a regular wedding we did see the call coming in guys but we're sorry we could not take it because we have to wrap up i will close it out with this texas does not do a lot of things right their admission process works 
we should implement that. Guys, this is Let Your Voice Be Heard. We'll be back next week, Sunday, for another amazing show. Until then, happy White Man Weekend, and we'll see you next Sunday. This place about to...